Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronauts Podcast. I am delighted uh, to introduce a guest today. Um, but today is Thursday, October 5th, 2023. Um, this is episode 96 of the Petronauts Podcast. We're nearing up on 100, and we have some awesome guests. So today, I'm happy to welcome Paul Tice. Um, and uh, he's an adjunct professor, um, and he has a absolute wealth of knowledge. Um, he has 40 years of experience on Wall Street. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to interrupt you in a second to do some timestamps. But Paul, thank you so much for coming on the Petronas Podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Um, so this is a great time to have you on, given that you do have 40 years of experience um, on Wall Street. Um, I know we, we've talked offline, and so there's a number of things we want to cover. But uh, it's the swing that we've had in oil prices, I think, is really incredible. Um, and it's driven by a lot of factors. But right now, we're sitting at, on October 5th, on Thursday, 2023, we're sitting at 82.36 for WTI, 84.13 for Brent. And I just want to remind listeners that, you know, September 27th, less than two weeks ago, basically a week of trading days, We've, we were at 93.68 for WTI, and we were 96.55 for Brent. So we've lost we've lost 13 bucks in Brent in a handful of days, which is which is a remarkable dive. Um, Henry Hub is actually edging up. I think we're the, the, some really nice territory in, at 317. Um, but I want to remind listeners that uh, you know, and I was saying this when oil prices were going to the moon, and people thought they couldn't go down. You know, copper prices have really been in the doldrums. We we're at 358. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of this year, we were well over four bucks. Um, the 30-year mortgage, and I'm sure we'll talk about the, the, the yields and all this stuff, given your, your knowledge and background. But, I mean, we're seeing 7.7% on the 30-year mortgage. I mean, if you and I were to get a mortgage right now, I'm pretty sure it would be north of 8% if we were trying to try to get one today, even if, we, if I could get approved. Um, the 10-year yield is really the big story, and that's it. That's it. 4.7% right now, and that ratcheting up of the 10-year yield, which is being driven by a myriad of factors, um, which we can get into, one of them being, you know, worries about U.S. debt um, and what's going on in that factor or go going on in that sector. But with that, you know, the goal of having you on this this podcast, Paul, is, you know, I've seen your a lot of your postings on LinkedIn. You know, we've met in person. You've been at energy security events that I've been at in D.C. Um, you really do have some very um, candid and insightful you know, commentary, um, and you speak your you speak your mind, which is great, and you also have a wealth of knowledge. Um, and the biggest topics I would like to get into um, is, you know, we've talked about ESG, um, and I think I've talked about ESG on the podcast, but I really think you can help shed light on having a a franker and deeper dialogue on ESG and why it's so problematic um, and why everybody's sort of leaning into this is it's, it's not helping. And you've had some excellent um, you've had some excellent posts. I mean, you, you have experience in the academic community, so we can we can talk about the divestment campaigns and what's going on there. Um, but without further ado, again, uh, welcome and um, let's you know where would you like to start? Uh, why don't we just dive in, kind of. Uh you know, ESG and, and kind of the history about it, because I think a lot of people are under the misconception that it's this organic investment uh, trend that has kind of materialized over the last few years. And actually, no, it, it's kind of the third leg of a stool that was started back 40 years ago in the 1980s. So, you know, climate change, sustainable development are both UN verticals. They both were, became intertwined back in the 1980s. And this is basically the financial market offshoot of those two trends. So this is basically trying to co-op the private financial markets to fund a lot of this progressive agenda. So um, I, I think people need to understand ESG for what it is, which is in the context of a 40-year kind of movement. Um, it, it clearly has gained traction significantly since the global financial crisis. And I think a lot of that is because coming out of the crisis and all of the rhetorics, particularly during the Obama administration about Wall Street versus Main Street, a lot of financial firms were looking for something to signal their virtue again. And clearly ESG fits the bill when it comes to that. So I, I think a lot of the embracement of ESG has been driven 
kind of by a short-sighted uh, strategic goal. Um, but it's going to be something that's very hard to unwind for the industry. And what started as a, a voluntary uh, aspirational program uh, 10 years ago um, has now become more mandatory. And over the next few years, regulation is going to cement that all in place. And so the, the goalposts are moving, the rules of the game are changing. And what's happened is a lot of buy side firms in particular, but also investment banks and banks are finding that they can't really back away from ESG given how they have championed it over the last few years. But it's, it's part of a 40 year progressive push and it's the UN, it's an international network of NGOs such as the World Economic Forum and it's specific national governments, particularly in Europe, governments, particularly in Europe that are you know, pushing this from behind the scenes onto the private markets. So it's clearly a non-democratic kind of uh, pressure-driven system. And it's really Wall Street that is pushing it onto the corporate sector. So for all the focus on woke capitalism and what's going on in the boardrooms of companies like Disney and Anheuser-Busch, you need to trace that back and focus on the financial markets because they're the ones that are putting pressure on on uh, company executives and boards to toe the line when it comes to ESG. So, so I'm well. There's a, and that's that's a fantastic intro. Um, there's a lot to to dive into there, and you know I think you and I are definitely on the. I I, I want to caution listeners to realize this is not a, a conspiracy theory when we're talking. We're taking ESG all the way back to the UN stuff because I, I I talk about this quite a bit with with clients, with various different projects I work on and spend a lot of time on China. And I think people don't really, really appreciate the role of sort of China within the United Nations, um, within the World Bank and the level of sort of, you know, their influence in global governance um, and and also influence in the in climate. And when we just think of, you know, even move, leave China out of it, but when we think of climate policies and we think of aggressive green energy agendas and we see, you know, in Europe and we see um, even, you know, when we see policy making, it sort of starts in Europe and then it funnels down and it's just talk and rhetoric and then it goes into London, which is a major financial hub, and then New York. Um, and then we start getting this stuff pushed within Wall Street. And this is where I, you know, in my conversation with Dan Romito and, you know, I think he's a, a great guy, but I, you know, I, I'm the, he and both Toby Rice, you know, they think we agree and, and we disagree on a couple of fronts. And that's that, you know, I think we keep the industry keeps saying, OK, well, if we just say we're cleaner and greener, we can beat this. Um, and that's kind of Toby's thing, which is, you know, I, I very much respect him from a business perspective. And I absolutely want natural gas to promulgate the entire world. And I want a pipeline to get built. Um, but I don't know if that's the right. I don't think that's the right approach because uh, it's not real. And then separately, you know, Dan and, and this ESG thing is that, you know, they have a product and, and they're selling this product and it's, it's you know, helping companies comply with ESG and sort of finding it from within. And um, I do want to ask about this sort of how, how we sort of push back and fight within, but I think it's a, a clear misunderstanding of what, where the pressures are coming from, how they're coming through the system, how they've matriculated. And I really do believe this, if you give a mouse a cookie, they want a glass of milk. And so people have to realize that, you know, a lot of these aren't mandated, but these ESG metrics, nor they are clear scorecards and they're an absolute mess, but they're about to be manda or regulated and mandated through Wall Street. Um, and I think it's extremely messy and the benefits to companies of compliance or adding to this, they're not actually getting these benefits. Um, so I want to know, you know, maybe we can, there's a lot to unpack there with everything I just said, but can we, can we back up and just talk about the, um, what is when companies today, public or private, are complying with the ESG stuff? What are the mandates and or non-mandates that public companies have to do? Um, and what is it that private companies are doing? And what is it actually achieving? And how are these companies getting rated? Because the argument is that if we do this, we're better valued, and we're going to get into a long-only portfolio, and we can properly compete. Well, I, I would to the point about whether this is all a conspiracy theory. Whenever you bring up the UN and the World Economic Forum. If, if you look at climate change, which clearly the, the nexus of that is, is the UN, and they obviously come out every six years with their uh, uh, assessment report, and the six ones do out you know, any day now. So they're the ones who are keeping that in focus. And then when you look at climate change, clearly that is kind of a, I mean, honestly, it's a wealth transfer function because more of the burden of decarbonizing is being placed on the developed world the industrial world, right? So there's a two-tier approach 
with regard to addressing the issue of man-made climate change, right? You've got that same bifurcation when you look at ESG. ESG is applied more strenuously to the developed nations and the developed markets. So it's, again, as with climate change, it's the U.S., it's North America, and it's Europe that are expected to do most of the heavy lifting when it comes to ESG compliance, right? Emerging markets, which I would argue obviously are riskier companies in general and probably have more issues with regard to governance and and social factors and environmental records, they are giving largely a pass around it. So there are definitely similarities in terms of both approaches. But when you talk about ESG and what the program is, uh, every, for the most part, every asset owner and asset manager on Wall Street is currently a member of the UN's Principles for Responsible Investment, which is the group that was set up back in 2006. Again, it's responsible investment. It's meant to single virtue, but every firm effectively in Wall Street has joined that that club. And that club has membership requirements. And if you look, you know, integration is required of all of its members. So you have to integrate ESG into all of your assets under management. And then you have to engage with all of your portfolio companies. Doesn't matter whether it's an index fund and you're a passive manager, uh, public or private, whatever sector, you're expected to engage and push your companies that you own to also comply. So if you look at the membership ranks of of the the UNPRI right now, it's 5,400 companies. Their AUM as at the end of uh, 2021, which is the latest data that we have, they estimated 121 uh, trillion. Okay, so assuming double counting in their numbers, and then you know take it down for 2022 because the markets were down. That's effectively all the AUM in the market. So okay, and it's I'm just already- say, I I'm sure lo- most listeners know this, but AUM assets under management. And you said another acronym before. Can you go? I you you threw in if we're th- throwing acronyms, feel free to you know explain them just so we listeners understand because you're wealth of knowledge and I want them to get as much value from this as possible. Okay, sure. I think the only a- other acronym was the UNPRI, which is the uh, the name of the group, the Principles for Responsible Investment. That is uh, basically a UN-backed group, and it's an affinity, affinity club, really. And, but it has strict membership requirements, and they've toughened those up over the last few years. And what started out as an aspirational program, and everyone could kind of figure out what worked for them from an ESG perspective, that, that now has shifted since 2015. And if you look at the rhetoric coming out of the PRI, basically now you need to comply and be aligned with the Paris Agreement. You need to align with the Sustainable Development Goals of uh, the 2030 Agenda, also of the UN. And ESG is now defined as basically translating all of the Sustainable Development Goals you know, into you know, themes and metrics and then applying them to your investment portfolio. So it's become more of a, a required program, back to the point yeah. where the, the rules are kind of changing over the last few years. Absolutely. And can I can I just ask a little further questions on that? Because I think it's a great crystallization of people just trying to wrap their arms around, you know, the UN thing. If, if you've, you can just do a little time Googling on UN sustainability goals, which are all, you know, the... The UN has endorsed the China's Belt and Road Initiative, which has a lot of dirty, uh, not environmentally friendly projects in it, but they fully endorsed it. Um, and so it really it really crystallizes that this isn't about the E, um, and it's not really about the E. There's really no S and G because it doesn't take into account the, you know, the human rights violations that are really prevalent in this. But are the entities, so like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, which I've talked quite a bit about on the podcast, you know, all those that sort of bent the knee when, with the Exxon debacle and the same day we had Exxon, Chevron, and Shell with a big board moody, board room, um, you know, big issues that happened, you know, a couple years ago. Is this, is that part of it? So the BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguards, are those all in the ones, are those the entities you're referring to that are, you know, trying to be strictly compliant and just only pulling in this, this E piece, which is a load of kind of BS anyways, because it's not even completely environmentally friendly, but we know it's definitely not uh, human rights friendly. Well, I mean, the big, the big three index fund managers, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, they get the most press. 
they also own the market. So between the three of them, you know, you can you can see how much they they own of, of public companies. And that came out in some of these proxy fights that we had two years ago, which I would argue, at least for for Exxon, was fairly overblown in terms of what the ultimate impact will be on the company, even though it was billed as a victory for engine number one. Uh, but they're more public about it. Obviously, Larry Fink is is out there as a leader of of sustainability. You know, I, I work at NYU Stern where I teach. You know, he has provided personal funding to the uh, Center for Sustainable Business there. You know, so he's using his personal money to promote that, at least in an academic setting. So he's a, a true believer. But again, 5,400 signatories to the PRI, that's effectively every insurance company pension fund, you know, in the developed world is is also doing that behind the scenes. And it's really, it's not the proxy fights, I would argue, that we should be focusing on. It's that backdoor ESG integration where the, it's it's going into funds that were already pre-existing. You know, they never were told about an ESG agenda. And you're applying that after the fact, which I would argue is, is the worst fiduciary problem associated with ESG. Right. If you just raise a sustainable fund, right, you know, de novo, I go out, these are the terms, this is the return that we're targeting, this is what we're going to do, and you can raise capital for that strategy, that's fine. But the problem is ESG is being integrated into all of the, of the uh, legacy funds on, on Wall Street, and then that's all being used as leverage to push companies to change their behavior. Okay, so there's a... There's a lot here, um, and I think that, I mean, you can write a book on ESG. I think you are actually doing that, so we'll have you back on the podcast once you've, uh, you know, you've released this book, um, and potentially you and I probably need to tag team a book or something on, on these problems, but Black, so if we're thinking about this, if we're thinking about this the right way of, uh, you know, you, you've got these entities, everybody's being pushed on the ESG side. Now, I want to talk about, you know, the fiduciary side, because I really do think that there's a problem here legally in that these things aren't making money. Um, but, you know, I've spent time with a lot of some folks that big on the hedge fund side, folks that manage money. Um, if you spend time with folks in, in London and New York, as, as I'm sure you do, you do hear this, you know, you know, there's a, the industry gets excited um, and they're sort of, it's sort of echoed by some folks on Wall Street is that, hey, you know, this stuff isn't making money. People are pulling out of the green stuff. They're divesting out of the green investments because, you know, interest rates are high. I was hearing, you know, the pull pullback from, from the green side, over a year, about a year ago, where that was already, it was happening before that, but there were a lot of hedge funds saying, yeah, this isn't making money, we're out of this. And so there was a recognition of that, but that has not coupled, you know, I, I would like you to know, give some clarity on that. But from what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from you is that that, that is not um, coming through on the ESG push side. So we still have all the entities like the State Streets, Vanguards, and everyone pushing that. And, you know, I hear other people saying, well, uh, that's not such a big deal. They're going to make fees off that, you know, and that's just what they want to do. But the real momentum around the green movement is being curtailed and people are, you know, waking up. And I get nervous about that because if we're still working on all this ESG compliance, it doesn't feel like people have woken up. And then you hear this kind of echoed a little bit, I think, within the oil and gas industry as well, is they hear this as well and they think this is positive, you know, and they think, okay, well, you know, this green stuff just isn't going to make money and people will eventually come to to reason and, and they will come back to oil and gas. And I think we have to be very careful with that. And that's why it comes, it's important to educate and figure out how we actually fight this thing from within. So I know that's a lot, but can you can you start with that and just help us understand the, these, the complexity of this problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say one of the problems with the response from the energy industry over the last, you know, really 20 years where it's been heating up around climate and then ESG over the last 15 of those 20 years um, is that they they try to use reason against a movement that yep. has no internal logic, right? So it, it's fair to argue that the economics don't work, but the economics have never worked for a lot of these new so-called new technologies if we remove all of the government subsidies, right? Direct subsidies, right? So wind and solar, Hydrogen is the latest flavor, renewable natural gas, biodiesel, ethanol, right? Pick your, you know, flavor in terms of, you know, uneconomic on a standalone basis, green energy, right? So I don't think that matters. I mean, 
clearly we're in a different interest rate environment, right? So we've, we've repriced a lot of these new startups, right? Just for the cost of interest. And now the cost of energy is going up and that obviously no one wants to talk about it. It goes into a lot of the construction costs for wind turbines and basically everything, right? But I don't think that cost is gonna change. I mean, you're probably gonna to have to rely more in terms of subsidies. Um, we already saw that in New Jersey. Um, you know, where I live, you know, we're obviously building this new big wind farm off the, the uh, Jersey shore, right. off the coast of, of Long Island, and we're, we're getting dead whales washing up on the beach. You know, no one on the environmental side seems the, the, the least bit curious about whether all this construction uh, around the wind farm is causing this, right? Because clearly we didn't have a, a dead whale problem prior to that. But because the cost of all these wind farms are going up here, the UK is encountering the same problem. Um, New Jersey, which got a billion dollars from the federal government, which they were supposed to rebate to utility owners in, in the state to lower their rates. They took that billion, the governor did, and he gave it to the developer for the wind farm because they were complaining that their costs had skyrocketed recently, right? So we just had the Inflation Reduction Act Government clearly has no problem running deficits. I think what they'll do as, as a lot of these new technology become more un uneconomic is they'll just ramp up the subsidy side of it. So it, it's a valid argument, but add it to the list of valid arguments that the energy sector has tried to make against you know, the transition and, and climate change, and it'll fail because at the, at the end of the day, there's too much momentum behind this if you go back to 40 years, which I think is when you should start the clock. Well, you know, there's a lot of things that you make me want to talk about there. Um, I, I think I want to hone in on, you know, getting the basics hammered out. But you did mention the offshore wind. And uh, I mean, if, you, if anyone has spent any time just, you know, dabbling in it, um, you know, it's based on offshore wind, the, the viability of it. It's not viable at all. Uh, it, it wasn't even viable five years ago when offshore wind, the wind turbines were so expensive. But now listen to the offshore wind turbine manufacturers and they'll tell you the cost of just like Siemens, the cost of just skyrocketed. But that was before they even got the, you know, the wind turbine even in the ground. And then you have to, you have to do this construction, you have to put it in the ocean. And then somehow you have to get that energy, that crappy form of wind energy that's intermittent. You have to get it transferred onshore. And so the amount of subsidization that goes through this is, is huge. And then you end up getting this really crappy form of energy, but it's all based on off these things called Oryx, which are the offshore renewable energy credit. And even then, I think a few years ago, these were out of the money. You know, even before these costs had skyrocketed, you know, there, this wasn't making any money. And this was an acreage play. This was a game. When people first bought this acreage, they flipped it. And companies like BP were stupid enough to buy it. And um, they paid a lot of money and uh, for this offshore acreage. And now the, these governments, like the UK, are really intertwined, it seems like, with their companies like BP, where everything's if you listen to the BP earnings call, it's all about wind energy and hydrogen and we'll plug in our vehicles and it'll all be, it'll all be interconnected. But they don't tell you how much they paid for that acreage and they don't tell you these costs. And there's huge issues, I think, within these companies and governments uh, already. And this is before the costs have really skyrocketed. And this is before they've even got, you know, the UK is a decent amount of wind energy into the grid. Um, but we, as you know, in the US, we barely got it off the ground, to my understanding, off the coast. And this has been in the works for years. Maryland is one of those as well. Yeah, no, there's been significant pushback off the East Coast. They tried it off of Nantucket and, and some of the pricier areas in Massachusetts. So, you know, but they're opening up leases in, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, which should be interesting because now we're putting wind turbines in an active hurricane zone. Right. You know, I, I will take the under in terms of how they perform, you know, during the next storm. And the reason it's never happened to the Gulf Coast, and again, I'm not a wind expert, but from all the folks I've talked with, um, it's it, it's not a good place. There, there's only a few places in the U.S. where offshore wind really works. You have to have enough wind. Um, and uh, the Gulf Coast is not the perfect place. So you, know, you can try it. Um, and there's some things that, you know, offshore wind guys can work with, with the platforms, with, with oil and gas. But at the end of the day, and this is why I, I'm really honest with people, is that typical forms of renewable energy that we're banking on for this uh, so-called energy transition, wind, solar, and battery, are really you know, we'll maybe separate battery. There's massive issues with China in that one. But wind and solar also coming from China, really crappy forms of energy. They're already subsidized. Um, and so we're talking about increasingly new, you know, 
onshore wind turbines, the increasing bulk of those are coming from China as well. Um, almost all the solar panels are coming from China. And so they're already subsidized from forced labor and from, you know, very cheap coal-fired power generation. And then it, it just, it's one of these, you bring up this point of this transfer of wealth, and this is one of the largest transfers of wealth we've seen. And what we tend to do is we're subsidizing, you know, a little bit different maybe in off the East Coast, but we are subsidizing very wealthy people, you know, to buy a Tesla um, when it comes to that. And so we we have things really out of whack. Um, and I know I'm going to change gears a little bit because I want to get into, you know, your thoughts on on actually making money, how we how we intelligently, is there an opportunity to push back on this, to educate, to change it from within? Um, but I want to talk about, I think it, you, you had posted a little bit on the UAW auto strikes. And um, I want to get your, your thoughts on that. I know this may not seem related for listeners. It's very related. I, I listened to someone who was an expert on the Detroit auto market on Bloomberg surveillance and was extremely impressed in how, with how this person articulated that this was a extremely bad problem and that we've never been here before. And essentially saying, you know, these auto workers are on strike because they, they know their jobs are not secure with the push, um, the forced push to go to electric vehicles. Um, and the reality is, you know, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler, are making are being pushed to make these electric vehicles, which are not selling. I had no idea how. I did not realize that you know Ford was losing fifty thousand dollars per Lightning F one fifty that they can't even sell, even though they brag about it. So they're losing massive amounts of money. They're losing several billion dollars a year on these electric vehicles, um, and the reality is that people just are not buying them, and so they're forced. Um, they're being forced to make them, and they're making these. You know, they're trying to make these plans, um, and this is a. It is a transfer of wealth. I mean, this this gentleman was saying it's very end he said we've never been in a situation where you have these auto workers on you know they're striking and he clarified he said look they want a 40 percent pay increase but if that was just it we could probably figure it out it's not the pay increase it's all the benefits on top of that which actually are guaranteed pay and pensions which bankrupted these companies before which the government had to come in and bail out so we have this big problem and it's it's already inflationary it's already you know stopped cars from being manufactured, you know, we're going to have serious issues there. But then it's this, you know, it really got me is this thinking about this transfer of wealth, you know, this government forcing and mandating a conversion, which they, the EPA and the, and the, um, you know, the Department of Energy is calling a conversion from, you know, um, internal combustion engine, ICE vehicles that we drive every day to electric vehicles. And they're, you know, subsidizing these companies and everything and pushing this. And yet the market isn't working this, this system out. And so it, the guy was basically just saying, this is, we're going, this is going to hell in a handbasket very, very quickly and quicker than people expected, I think. So, um, you know, I want to go back to all the other stuff we talked about, but I just love your perspective on this and what, how you're thinking about this um, and some of those comments I just made. Yeah, I think what the uh, the UAW uh, you know strike and uh, contract negotiations with the big three shows you that when it comes to ESG, it's basically a, a subjective moral system of value. Uh, climate change clearly is 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 the key ESG factor, but for the most part, it's just a collection of of subjective goals, right? And when it comes to running a company, a lot of these non financial factors have obviously negative financial impact, right? ESG, you know, activists will tell you that if you focus on all these ESG factors, it'll create long-term value. They never tell you how long it's going to take in that, that estimate. And the horizon is always moving on you, right? Um, but it's, you know, one of the craziest things I, I find in terms of the ESG argument that's made on Wall Street is that all of these non-financial factors will, will lead to an increase in financial asset prices. Well, how is that going to work? No one ever can actually articulate that. Right. If you look at all the research that's been published over the last 10 years, none of it is conclusive. None of it really points to a direct relationship. And, and the best thing I could tell you about ESG is it's not a positive catalyst for value, you know, whether corporate performance or investment performance. At best, it's a very broad category of negative event risk, right? I have a spill, my tailing dam collapses. Yeah, obviously my stock and bond prices are going down immediately, right? So an unexpected event related to ESG, yeah, that's going to be negative for security prices. But if you're an investor, your natural reaction should, in most cases, be to buy that name after it trades down. Right. I mean, if you bought BP after the, the spill in 2010 in the Gulf of Mexico, 
you would have made a lot of money in just three months time, right? If you had the conviction that whatever the fine is going to be here, ultimately, I've got enough asset value behind me for the company where it's not going to have to liquidate, right? So that's what ESG is in a nutshell. But, but the UAW contract shows you that a lot of them conflict and offset each other. So union rights, I think, is also a key you know, social factor that ESG activists focus on. It's unionization is good. I would argue for a company that's probably negative because you have a more rigid workforce. You've got these contracts which could lead to disruptions every three to four years as you negotiate them. And it probably leads to a higher cost labor force, right? In general, that would be my view. And, and certainly you see that play out in the energy sector around refining when you've got a difference in terms of whether unionized or not. But you've got union rights now clashing with the green agenda around the big three. And as you said, the, the, the mandate to, to produce more electric vehicles uh, is financially, already financially negative. And, and now they're going to have to reconcile those two. I do think that it's a wealth distribution. I live in New Jersey. Most of the, the Teslas that you see driving around, and they are ubiquitous, I would argue they're a third car. They're a train car. I'll, I'll drive it a mile, get on the train, come back. So I don't really have to worry about running out of a charge. I don't think anyone in West Texas is going to be driving an electric F-150. They, they just can't because then you have to figure out you know, whether I can get enough charge to get home. It, it becomes this complicated analysis. It kind of like back with ethanol. When ethanol was all the rage back in yep. 2005 to 2006, we were supposed to make cellulostic ethanol and, and a lot of it, no one knew how to do it at the time. But you know, all the investments at the time that, that we looked at in my hedge fund around ethanol, you, know, you had this circular argument about you know, people will, will use more ethanol if you have more gas stations that sell it, right? It's the same problem with electric vehicles. Okay, if, if I know that they're going to be ubiquitous, just like gas stations, and I can charge it, and I don't have to wait a half an hour, that's the other thing that I'm not sure you can actually finesse that problem. If it takes me 30 minutes to charge, I don't know, certainly not this part of the country, how many people would be willing to wait that long right. to recharge a car. And then if you're second in line, good God, you're going to be waiting there a long time. So I think you have to work out these logistical issues until anyone would really commit to a, an electric vehicle. But then again, we don't have a long history for these, these EVs because you know, how long do they, does the battery last if you're not driving it all the time? The battery is most of the value of the car. I mean, if I have to plunk down whatever, $20,000 for a battery after a short period of time, that's not a very good economic trade, even with all the subsidies that the state and the federal government is throwing my way, even though I'm probably a high income earner, right? So yeah, there are a lot of economic distortions here, um, but it's the government basically trying to push this on to the market. It just highlights how the energy transition is not market driven. It's not driven by logic either. It's driven by politics and the government, and you're going to have a lot of these unintended consequences. Um, some tactical retreating, I think, by the proponents, but it's still a forward momentum. I mean, no one's going to really back off of the, for the premise that we have to get off of fossil fuels. And I think that's something the, the energy industry really needs to embrace because I would not just you know focus on some of these minor setbacks to the opposition and think that you're making progress. You're not. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, you give a, you give a lot of information there to digest and to think about. Um, and I, I think it is really critical and important for listeners and for folks to realize that um, you do have to appreciate that this is a massive wealth transfer um, and that, you know, the, the energy transition is, is fake. It's not real. It's definitely not ESG friendly if you actually believe in environmental, social and governance. Um, you know, it's a load of absolute horseshit. Um, so that's a problem. Um, and, you know, I should family-friendly podcast. I shouldn't have said that, but um, horse crap. Um, it, it is a big problem because it's, you're piling this stuff on, you're piling straw on top of straw on top of straw. And we have these, it's already failing and it's very, it's very subsidy government dependent. Now I would, I would caution folks to say that this is definitely the road we're going come hell or high water because 
realities do win the day. Um, and, you know, and I think I have to be careful with the oil industry because I think folks will say, you see, exactly, realities will win the day and people just come back to oil and gas and everything will be fine. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think oil and gas needs to get um, very much more comfortable with being the oil and gas industry and producing oil and gas and articulating why folks need to invest in them and why there's a long-term play for oil and gas. I think that that needs to be, you know, front and center for oil and gas companies. However, that being said, you know, when I hear you know, I'm hearing people talk to me about, and I spend a lot of time on energy security, on geopolitics, a lot of stuff on China and Europe. And when I hear of governments in Europe, you know, looking at their military plans on how to go to net zero, you know, we know we've got some serious problems there because Europe is not even adequately funding the war in Ukraine that's being left to, to the Americans, which is already having war fatigue. But we're having some serious issues with if, if you have some serious geopolitical risk power consequences if you're if you're military if you're trying to get your military to go to net zero um, because you're going to be you know taking the strength of your military away um, because batteries and solar and wind just aren't simply going to be aren't simply going to work but there's a bigger you know I, I think there's a there's a fiduciary thing and the actual money making thing that I have a problem with and I'd love you know there's two three things I want to make sure we cover before we close here that's you know is there legal issues with ESG and the fiduciary responsibility and this not actually making money um, and people sort people lying about this and it not actually returning it um, making returns um, and then you know is any of this that the, the sort of the deeper I, I want to get into the the real impact that these ESG metrics are having um, and the ability for, you know, the prevention of capital access. So, you know, something I, I keep trying to drill home is that if we allow this ESG momentum to keep going, oil and gas industry is not going to have access to capital and they're not going to be able to fund the ability to drill and complete wells or to even get insurance. And I believe that is a that is a what the divestment community and the folks who want to defund oil and gas, that, that's what they want to do. So those are the two big things I want to you know touch on right now is the, you know, making money in the fiduciary responsibility. Is that legal? And then the you know lack of capital access. Well, on the fiduciary side, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I, I think ESG integration after the fact is a huge fiduciary problem. But the UNPRI, if you look at the work that they've done over the last eight years, they have specifically focused on the fiduciary rule and tried to change it, both in Europe and the U.S., and redefine it such that it allows for the consideration of ESG factors and actually goes to the point of saying it's required that you look at environmental, social, and governance factors. They actually, back in 2015, they co-authored a report with uh, Al Gore and uh, his generation group uh, on redefining fiduciary responsibility in the 21st century. So it was a very self-serving piece. Absolutely. And then after they published it, after they published it, they spent four years lobbying government regulators in North America and Europe primarily to affect a lot of their recommendations. And you mentioned Europe. Europe is the leading edge for ESG. It's the leading edge for climate change and sustainability. So what's happening in Europe now is probably the ghost of Christmas yet to come for the U.S., I think. But they're already moving on that front. And actually here in the U.S., the Department of Labor, you know, at the beginning of this year under Biden, um, changed the, the uh, original definition to allow for um, the consideration of ESG. So that opens the door. You know, you know they, they've been trying for years, the PRI and other activists, to redefine ESG as a risk management framework. So if you're not following it, you're mismanaging risk and you, you know, create liability for yourself. And that's a fiduciary problem. That's creating such already market distortions and the ability to just invest in stocks and the ability of like, which one is going to give me the greater return. And I mean, most people, most sound analysts will tell you, you know, when politics get involved with a company, um, and I'm not trying to go down crazy on the woke platform, but typically when, you know, way before people were talking about all this stuff, basically people would say Starbucks. When, when Starbucks was, when the, when they were, the company was focusing on, um, you know, the people's pay over the actual profits of the company and selling coffee, um, people started getting concerned about the stock performance. That was just a reality of like, how is their share, how is their share price going to perform? How are they going to perform as a company when they're spending so much on, you, now you have to spend money on human capital and, and labor, absolutely. 
but that's it's a reality and we've gotten so disconnected from that right now it just seems like this is a reality of like how can you make money as and how do you invest you invest and you buy stocks and you um, invest in them accordingly because they they're going to be profitable when you have all these distortions in there it's going to be really hard to actually make money uh, agree and i think it, it's going to be more guidelines put up for where capital flows, but this is all by design. I mean, this is part, it's not a defect or an unintended consequence. The goal with ESG is to control capital flows and direct it towards those sectors that are favored, which would start with green energy and away from those that are, you know, politically incorrect, like fossil fuels. So that, that's the end game. Fiduciary, the fiduciary rule is the one stumbling block that they really have to dismantle, right? And, and, they're doing that here. I know the states, a number of the states have challenged the, the DOL ruling back in January. We'll have to see how that progresses. But Europe is already far ahead of us. You know, they yeah. passed their EU taxonomy. They have their corporate sustainability disclosure rule. They have their sustainable finance disclosure rule. They're setting up new due diligence rules. You know, so you know, basically you can only direct capital towards sustainable activities, right? Right. And so I think, and they've also kind of reframe the whole idea of return. I mentioned before that with all of the, the research that's been published, none of it can really point to a positive impact on company performance or investment returns over a long-term period of time, which is not surprising because ESG scores and ratings are all over the map. They measure different things. A lot of them offset each other and you have different market environments. So ESG apparently works in you know, both up and down markets, public and private, every sector all the time based on what their argument is. But they're kind of backing away from the return argument since they have no data to back it up with. And now they're framing it as risk-adjusted return. And when you when you put it in those terms, risk-adjusted for, e, you know, return-adjusted for ESG risk, then that implies to me that you should be willing to take a lower return for certain investments, right? So there's, and then, that now is moving more towards a focus on impact, away from return on impact. And really the only way you can measure impact, because you're not, I mean, you, you can't really look to, you know, people on the planet like the big focus is. You're going to look at just capital flows. How much capital am I directing here, away from there? And so that is going to change kind of, you know, the, the DNA of Wall Street. It'll be first in Europe. It's already happening. I mean, we're we're... If you look at the bond market, and I think, again, I meant, mentioned about the proxy advisory focus every year and BlackRock and all of that, which has calmed down the last two years. I don't think the equity market is where we should be focused in terms of ESG. It's the credit markets, right? That is where they're going to turn off capital at the bank level as well as bondholders to certain sectors, starting with fossil fuels. And that'll start in Europe. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't make long-term projections, but I think sometime over the next two years, the body language is clear that there's going to be a, a global climate emergency declared, either at various national levels, starting in Europe, or at the UN level. And then that will give you know the, the people pushing this much more power to be more aggressive with regulations. So, but... You've already seen in the bond market in Europe that 29% of what was issued in total last year on the investment grade side had a sustainable or ESG or some other label to it. So the bond market is used to credit ratings. You can see very easily that maybe every bond that has to be issued going forward will have a sustainability rating to it. So everything will basically have to be inspected like, like food, right? That could be the, the way that we're going uh, in terms of changing the market. And that will happen once the regulations are put in place and cemented, right? The ones that require a certain amount of disclosure, and we've got that here in the U.S. now. They're all in, in pending format right now. They'll be finalized over the next coming months. But you have the SEC, you've got the Federal Reserve, you've got the OCC, you've got the FDIC, you've got the Department of Labor. All have come out with their own sets of climate-focused ESG rules. And also in Europe, they're doing the same, right? So the capital controls are, are kind of closing in. And I think the energy sector clearly needs to keep this in mind. So you talked about misperformance up until now. 
I think there's been a lot of, for lack of a better word, greenwashing is the term used, where people say we're sustainable or we do this on the ESG front, but then you look and they're basically, you know, a closet index fund. You know, in theory, you should have no energy exposure, at least traditional energy, if you really towed the line around ESG, I think, right? If you're true to your word and what you're trying to do on climate, you shouldn't be funding any of that. And no one's really doing that. BlackRock's not doing that. None of the big index funds, active or passive, are doing that. What they're doing is they're waiting for regulations to force them to do it. Right. Because if they do that and they're leading independently, then they're going to have to wear that, wear that bad performance uh, versus their peers. And you know, as we saw in 21 and 22, energy sector was a huge outperformer, both for debt and equity. Um, you know, if you miss that, you know, it's going to take you 10 years to drop that out of your performance track record, right? So I think even, even the big guys who supported like BlackRock are waiting for the regulations and the regulators to give them air cover, basically. And that's coming. Right. Unless it's it's, you know, the industry as well as, you know, other politicians push back against it. So that's um, really fantastic color. And clearly, I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast because there's there's just a way too much to unpack uh, in, in, in one in an hour. Um, and I know this is something I deeply care about and listeners care about as well. So we'll have you back. But I think you you're getting to this point, which I want to get into, uh, which is great, is that so the two things is that you're getting into this capital access and, you know, credit and insurance, which I think is extremely critical for the oil and gas industry to understand you know, the threat to them right now in terms of the ability to access capital. And you hear about it and folks are talking about it, but they're not really honing in on it. And that's why I think the compliance with the ESG stuff, we have to be very careful about how we're doing it uh, and pushing back. So my first question is, how do we effectively, how do educated, intelligent people, is there, is this just, we're all going to hell in a handbasket, the world is over, these um, corrupt individuals and this money-making political machine is going to drive everyone to the road to hell. Um, and we can only, you know, we've got Chris Wright, you know, yourself, me, and um, Jamie Diamond, apparently the only publicly pe people willing to push back on this. Like, how can we push back on this effectively? And is there ways to do this actually effectively, you know, through education as a way within the system? Like, you know, the, the you know, how do you stay positive in this environment? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the uh, Ronald Reagan happy warrior kind of approach. So, but I think we need a change in tactics. Uh, talking about the energy sector, because again, it's not working what's happening. I, I think first and foremost, more energy CEOs need to develop the courage, frankly, to speak out more, uh, to speak out more. And again, they're under the same pressure as every public CEO. So I get that. But at a certain level, defending your industry and your company from specious attacks should sit well with your board. And I don't think there are a lot of boards right now that you have to worry about your back if you're a public CEO. So being out there talking about fossil fuels, how that drives capitalism for the last 200 years um, and all the benefits uh, that it gives to the American economy, I think that's first and foremost what every CEO should be doing for an oil and gas company. Um, but I would back away from acceptance of this energy transition. I think that's where the entire industry gets into, you know, they, they get into a slippery slope because if you, and this, you know, this is both the industry specific companies, big and small, doesn't matter if it's crude or, or natural gas levered. Um, but it's also the industry groups like the API, the U S chamber of commerce, business Roundtable, all of those groups, if you look, are supportive of climate change theory, the transition, stakeholder capitalism, which is basically, you know, the new form of capitalism that underlies ESG. Um, you know, all of that is, is toxic to the industry, right? But, but getting back to the energy transition, if, if you just argue about execution with the energy transition, so Exxon in the last few weeks came out and said, you know, we think we'll be using fossil fuels uh, in 2050 probably the same amount we're doing right now. Okay, that is probably true, but there's gonna be a lot of economic damage between now and then. Absolutely. And, and clearly the other side, you know, is using kind of a pincer approach where they're going after supply and specific energy companies. That's why they want 
everyone to disclose their scope three emissions. Then they know who to target first in terms of, of curtailing that production. But they're already starting in terms of trying to destroy demand in terms of not allowing gas pipelines to be built in the eastern part of the country or anywhere in the country for that matter. And then going after natural gas infrastructure for new construction, right? Stoves, furnaces, portable generators. Um, so that eventually, and then you've got ICE vehicles, which will go away in 2035. So that will go after crude oil demand. And again, it's not going to work. There's going to be, you know, a lot of economic damage. It's probably going to fall most painful on the lower income stratus, right? To your point about wealth transfer, right? And, and people will just ignore all of that reality. So I, I think the sector, ha the industry has to acknowledge that you can't use reason anymore. It hasn't worked up until now. So trying to argue that, and this is Toby Rice's argument, which again, it's a logical argument in terms of coal being displaced by natural gas. That's actually a good thing if you're worried about emissions, but you know, that's not, that's not the goal here. The goal is to shut down fossil fuel industries in the developed world, full stop, okay? It's a two-tier approach. So trying to bargain with the other side, which is what the, the energy sector in the U.S. has been doing for 20 years now, that, oh, natural gas will be the last survivor, or in the case of the majors, like Exxon and, and Chevron, and even Oxy to a certain extent, now Absolutely. they're building out they're building out a, a carbon segment, you know, which will be like a closed loop. And that will be their way to make sure that the last man, you know, standing. But it doesn't matter if you're the last man standing, they're still coming for you at that point. And I think that is wasting their platform by just, you know, viewing it from a competitor perspective and only how it impacts individual companies and not how it impacts the entire industry. It's very short-sighted, I would argue. And they need to get more aggressive, I think, about challenging the need for an energy uh, transition, why we're doing this. And that's going to force them to actually finally have a, a very painful debate. I acknowledge that. But talk about climate change theory, the data that underlies it, all the problems with that, and whether we really are in a climate emergency, which I clearly would say we're not. And there are 1,600 scientists out there who would echo that feeling. So there's no consensus. People just need to be comfortable to actually challenge a lot of these uh, myths in public. And, and 40 years after it started, that would be you know, problematic. But that's why no one on Wall Street does it. That's why no one, even in the energy sector, does it, even though ESG is, is primarily focused on that industry. Yeah, I think that's a extremely good summary because and I, I couldn't agree more. I think that but that comes back to leadership. And, you know, I literally I had I had drinks with a couple of people in the industry last night. And I mentioned that of really crappy, poor leadership and people I meant I talked to another person yesterday, a leader in the industry, and I, I called out some um, just some Wyoming politicians that I didn't think, you know, Wyoming is a state that should be leading the charge on pushing back on ESG and they don't seem to be. And, you know, I get uncomfortable responses from people. They get awkward and uncomfortable. And I thought you guys got to be a little more comfortable being uncomfortable because if you can't even have a conversation about poor leadership in this space, we are in a, we are in a big problem. And I think that's, uh, you know, something Chris Wright and I talk about a lot is that that is we do need better leaders and we need people, you know, if you lay your head on your pillow at night and you are making money in the oil and gas industry and you are a CEO, like most of us know I'm third generation oil and gas. Most of us know this is a boom and bust business. This is a really hard business. It's also great business. There's a reason why a lot of us are in it is because it's filled with incredible people. It's filled with engineers. It's, it's a, just it's an amazing business and um the intellectual capital behind it the ability to solve problems is huge and so it's amazing that you say this has been going on 20 years and this absolutely has i mean you know i you have folks like you know bloomberg who puts his own personal wealth and finance and also has a you know a news feed and so when you read an article on bloomberg and it says alleged in front of spy balloon in china you know there's an influence there and you also see bloomberg investing heavily in his philanthropic things of like getting rid of coal, but it's also getting rid of coal and natural gas, which 
the natural gas industry forgets. And so he's putting another 500 billion, I think it's 500 billion dollars to getting getting rid of every coal fired power plant. And I, I think people have to think about this more broadly than just, you know, yes, energy executives, you know, oil and gas executives in, in the US need to, you know, be more firm and, and talk about this and care about the industry, because this also trickles down to people within their business. But it goes beyond that. If, if we cannot access capital, if the if they you can't get insurance, if you can't do this, you can't do business, you know, you impact the entire industry, you impact the U, U.S. energy security, you impact global energy security, you impact the U.S. competitiveness. I mean, China has competitive strengths in battery technology in batteries because they process the rare earth minerals and it's a dirty unenvironmentally friendly process. They use forced labor and they have lots of subsidies and coal-fired power generation that allows them to compete disproportionately to us. And we have 13 million barrels a day of crude oil and 124 BCF a day of gross production for gas. That's our competitive strength. And I think that, you know, we do need to, you know, push these leaders to be leaders in the space and not just I think you're clarifying this well, but I think it actually matters for the share price performance in the near term is that they've got to start explaining to people what their company is doing and why oil and gas is investable. Um, and then having the harder debate and argument about what's going on within the space and pushing back through the system. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to have education. I, I, there's not a single Uber ride I've had. I mean, last night I took an Uber to meet, to meet with these friends and the Uber driver asked what I did and how I, you know, what, what I did for a living. And um, we started talking about energy and the market. And, you know, every time I leave this, the Uber ride and I tell them about the podcast, I'm always kind of blown away of how open-minded these folks are um, and how interested they are in energy, how interested they are in the economy, how they want to know what's going on in the economy, whether oil prices are higher. And they seem to care and they don't seem nearly as, uh, you know, the world doesn't seem nearly as politically divided when you start talking to people. It seems like, you know, we see so much of this out there and people really want that information. So I, I just encourage everyone from leadership all the way down to folks, you know, everyone in the field to be um, vocal about what they do for a living and care about it and talk about it. Yeah, I would say, in my opinion, I think oil and gas is probably one of the most science-based industries that we have, right? And if you look at technology advancements over the last 20, 30 years, I would put hydraulic fracturing, seismic imaging, and horizontal drilling at the top of the list, above the iPhone, above the internet, both of which have obviously you know negative social implications. But in terms of changing the entire global energy industry, it's a science-driven industry. So they need to be comfortable enough to speak out in public certain truths about the climate science, which has been very politicized. And to your point that everyday people, I think, get it. I think it's intuitive. People know the cost of energy, how it filters into their life, what happens with inflation, right? what's going to happen to the food chain if the cost of energy goes up. Right. So if you look at, you know, polling in the U.S., climate change has never been a big driver around elections. It's never been on the ballot in any major election. So a lot of what we're we're dealing with around the energy transition is being pushed you know, through the back door by regulatory agencies, clearly of, of a certain side of the aisle. Right. So it's a non-democratic process. I think that should give people more of a uh, a, a backbone in terms of being comfortable to speak out about it. But um, if you look at the energy industry, no matter what they do, they are accused of arguing in bad faith. Everything that comes out of their mouth is basically just them trying to talk their own book and protect their bottom line. Um, you know, so they're going to be accused of that anyway. As you made the point, if you want to look for bad faith arguments, let's look at Michael Bloomberg. Let's look at Al Gore, who has his sustainable investment fund. Um, the uh, I forget his name, but um, the person who ran um, the uh, the G fans, uh, the the uh, the net zero for the financial institutions. Um, he was the head of the uh, central bank in the UK, and, and uh, his name will come to me in a minute. But he has his own side business working for Brookfield on the sustainable time. So he's telling banks and other financial institutions to basically go to net zero, and that drives business to what he's doing. It creates more opportunities. 
So there's a lot of bad faith argument to go around there's on the other money side. Being made. Yeah, and to your point, there's a lot of money being made in green energy. And I would also tell people to just like look at the leaders in the green energy space and how they live. They're extremely wealthy people that do not live by how they talk. And I've seen the chief of staffs uh, for Biden's house. You know, I've seen where he lives. Um, and he bought a, a lot behind him to bulldoze it to put in a pool. I'm, I'm certain that this most progressive Biden administration that we have that's very, you know, pro, you know, climate change agendas, I, I'm certain that that pool requires a lot of energy um, to actually keep that he that pool heated and that, you know, it wasn't the most environmentally friendly thing to do was just to bulldoze a house and put a pool in. And it also just, I mean, it's just excessive wealth. So it's something, it's extremely counterintuitive. And, you know, it's one of those things I think that, I, I, we all try to avoid the politics, but it is deeply political. And I think this is where, you know, educating about the facts of energy and just education and people talking about this is extremely important. Um, you know, we could go on. We didn't even get into oil prices, inflation. So I'm definitely going to have you back on the podcast. Um, do you have anything last, last minute stuff you want to add? I definitely want to give you the last word. Well, just one last point about the point about politics, you know, because the whole political argument has been used to shut down any debate around climate change. Oh, it's just a political disagreement. And we're, we're seeing the same tactic used around ESG over the last couple of years that you've seen some pushback from Republican at, re Republicans at the state level, um, obviously mostly red states. Um, and people are just dismissing it as, as a political disagreement. You know, I think people need to also embrace, in, including in the energy sector, that yes, this is politics. It's progressive politics, and they're masquerading it as finance. Okay, the, the ESG is not being driven internally by the industry. No one is really embracing it voluntarily, except under duress, and people can't speak out about it. I mean, I experienced this working on the buy side over the last ten years. If you look. Um, you really haven't seen any books published that come out critical of ESG. Certainly none from, from the industry, which is surprising for something that's caught fire so much. The only books that you actually see that are critical of ESG are those that are saying, oh, well, it's not going far enough. You know, we, we need to go straight to impact. Um, and let's just forget about this whole return and integration thing. And, and even uh, the book by uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, which is positive, Woke Inc. is positive because it sheds light on ESG. But, you know, I, th I think it feeds into the narrative now that he's running for the Republican nomination that it's, it's just a, a political thing. It's not. I don't think, you know, anyone within the energy industry or who was opposed to ESG should let that back them off because, it, yeah, embrace it. It's politics. No way around it, just like climate change. There's a reason why... All the Democrats, you know, line up, um, you know, in in solidarity around it. And Republicans, like everything else, they don't have uniformity. That's our problem. You, you don't have conviction on, on the Republican side, conservative side. A lot of the Republicans are just engaging in conservative cosplay when it comes to climate change. Or they, they don't want to have that discussion. And they say, well, I'm not a scientist. But you don't need to be a scientist to, to have this debate and have, you know, basically all the fatal flaws in the argument pointed out. And I think if the energy sector, just to close with this, if the energy sector would be more vocal about defending itself, I think you will find more uh, government officials on the Republican side, particularly at the state level, who would be willing to, I think, do more. And I actually had that comment relayed to me a couple of weeks ago, talking to the treasurer of a state out by your way, and he just made the comment that he's, su he's surprised how the industry really is not speaking up for itself, um, given how you know, um, negative the, the regulatory environment has become for them. Um, so first thing, defend yourself, defend the virtues of fossil fuels, and then start engaging in a public debate about the climate argument under, underlying energy, the energy transition. And if you need to, Go out and get, you know, the number of climate scientists who are, who are not afraid to speak out about that. Steve Kudin, you know, Judith Curry, Richard Linson, William Happer, you know, I can name a dozen of them and, and use them to bolster your argument. But the argument needs to start being made because between now and 2030, 2030 is a real deadline. 
I don't think people can laugh off the 2030 deadline for ESG and they want to create a sustainable global financial system in the next six years. Okay. That's going to lead to a lot of carnage in the market and energy transition as we're, we're undergoing it now is going to be usually negative for financial markets and, and financial asset prices. I don't know how anyone can make that argument, but no one is stepping up and pointing out that obvious fact. So I think the energy sector has, if they can defend themselves, it will give courage to other industry sectors who will be coming next. You know, petrochemicals. Every heavy industry has a carbon footprint that's problematic. Once they deal with fossil fuels, then they're going to figure everybody else next. Uh, amen. And I would say also that, you know, the industry doesn't realize, um, and they do, but they need to really appreciate that the market does look to them. You know, people listen to, you know, the CEOs of major oil companies to get a, a, a read in on the macro, how they're seeing the market, how they're seeing things. And so it's as simple as this of like talking about this more vocally the way Chris Wright does in his earnings call, you know, taking, you know, energy as, as such a caring about it and actually discussing it, it matters because it does put politicians in, in the uncomfortable place where they have to deal with reality. And I actually think that we, um, you know, there, there is not just Republican, it's center left. Um, and there's folks that, you know, in Northwest Colorado that I, you know, even heard of the, the folks that have to represent these coal communities where I'm from. Um, this, it's just a reality. And that's where I say we need to be we need to be pushing back and holding politicians feet to the fire as much as industry leaders that states that are oil and gas states need to be vocal about being oil and gas states. I don't call them fossil fuels. I call them crude oil. Um, natural gas and coal, because I think that has such a negative connotation. Um, but with that, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. We're definitely going to have you back. Um, um, Paul Tice, you've been a fantastic guest, you know, for listeners also. He's also an, so he's an adjunct professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. You have 40 years of experience, um, you know, on the trading side in Wall Street, which is just incredible. So I hope people, you know, take this podcast really seriously um, and, you know, and also realize that this is why I do what I do. I want this information out there. I care about it. And that you do not just that you have to talk about it, but you have to support companies like mine and work with people like me. And you want voices like this out there talking about this. So the industry has been exceptionally tight and really quiet in the last two years. Um, and they need to open up their pocketbooks on the education side and they need to be more vocal. So thank oh, you so much, Paul. Okay. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you.